The energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. Twenty twenty two was a year like no other. As the world emerged from the haze of COVID nineteen in January, there was cause for optimism and markets rebounded and the world opened up. Then Russia's invasion of Ukraine sent shockwaves rippling across the globe. An energy crisis ignited by war and fueled by a humanitarian crisis led to inflation and the looming threat of recession in the biggest economies on earth. Looking back on the last twelve months, it's difficult to focus on anything else. However, despite all of this in the world of energy, there are causes for optimism. The crises of the year have shown that the world needs to prioritize renewables and energy security, develop diversified energy sources, and increase the rate of decarbonization. On the podcast today, we look at five key developments from the world of energy that have positive implications for the future of our planet. It may have been a harrowing year, but there are some silver linings to the storm clouds. Joining me to discuss these topics and more is Wood Mackenzie's own Kavita Jadhoof and Ed Crux. Kavita, welcome to your very first Horizons podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. As always with these podcasts, I like to get to the bottom line up front. So what is your key takeaway from the year? So I think looking back at 2022, we will think of the energy crisis as one of those defining reset moments. It's human nature. You want to keep things simple. You want the pace to be quick. You want results quickly. But I think what the energy crisis has brought home for for all of us, uh, policymakers, consumers, um, us as analysts, is that the energy transition is complex. It's it's necessary, but it's complex, and it's it's. I think that is very important. It's something that we'll take from this year as a lesson. That's very well said. I'm looking forward to unpacking that over the rest of the podcast. Also joining us today, we have Ed Crooks. Ed covers the full range of commodities, technologies, and sectors at Woodmac. He writes the very popular Energy Pulse newsletter and hosts the bi-weekly podcast, The Energy Gang, which focuses on the news and latest developments from the world of energy. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot for having me on. So same question to you. I am curious, what is your key takeaway from the year? Yeah, I think that uh, Kevita put it very well there. Really, it's, as you were saying in the introduction, uh, it's been a grim year in so many ways, just in terms of um, obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine inflationary pressures that we've had, still ongoing effects from COVID-19, the lockdowns in China continuing and so on. It feels like it's been a really rough and difficult year. But there are some absolutely clear positive signs pointing to a better future for the world of energy that we're going to get into in this discussion. And so in a way, perhaps you could say we're doing something a little bit different with this report for the end of the year. This is kind of perhaps um, getting away from uh, our usual kind of format where we're concentrating on one specific uh, industry or sector or whatever it might be. And we're just trying to send that message that I thought Kevin put it very nicely. That's a great way to think about it, to th- think that as rough as this year has been, it's also been a reset in many ways, for the energy industry and a reset in many positive ways. And as we look ahead to the future, as we always do at this time of year, there's lots of ways that we can be thinking about looking ahead to a more positive future because of the things that happened in 2022. Outstanding. I appreciate the tone of optimism, and I'm key to unpack some of these common themes and see where the optimistic rivers here are. So let's go ahead and get right into the conversation. 
one of the biggest positives to come out this year was the shift in attitudes of policymakers to the realities of the climate crisis. There was acknowledgement from governments that we really need to diversify our energy sources, a range of low-carbon technologies need to be used, and that was a welcome sign. So what policy changes did we see this year that showed us the world was really taking significant steps on the road to net zero? So I think when you think about changes during this year, obviously there's a lot of emphasis placed on renewable energy and wind and solar, and it's clear that we're going to see a lot more momentum behind renewables and wind and solar in particular in the next few years because of what's been happening this year. But one of the big things we're identifying that's been very positive about this year is the fact that policymakers have identified very clearly that renewable energy has its limits, that for some industrial uses where you need heat, for instance, wind and solar are really not great. It's very difficult often to electrify those processes. Um, Wind and solar power are variable by their very nature. And to some extent, you can manage that with things like demand management, with energy storage and so on. But there are limits to what you can do with that. And there will be times, as in the famous, uh, I don't know if you know this uh, uh, German expression, which I've been quoting to everybody recently about the Dunkelflauter. Uh, in other words, the dark doldrums. My German is terrible, but I think the dark doldrums is a pretty good uh, translation. And in other words, that means a time when it's overcast, there's not much um, solar irradiance, and also the conditions are still, so you don't get a lot of wind either. And when you get those conditions, which can last for two weeks or longer at a time, then both wind and solar generation are going to be very low. And if you want to keep the lights on, you need to have something else. And what we've really seen this year is a lot of policymakers, a lot of different parts of the world think about that issue, and not just think about it, but actually start to put in place steps to address that and to stimulate, for instance, uh, hydrogen industries, uses of hydrogen for uh, industrial purposes, low carbon hydrogen, maybe green, which is made from the electrolysis of water, maybe blue hydrogen, which is made from natural gas with carbon capture and storage. So a lot of policies in Japan, in the EU in particular, in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, put in place to support the growth of the hydrogen industry, a lot of effort going into carbon capture and storage for fossil fuels so that we can continue to use fossil fuels while having zero carbon emissions, Uh, efforts uh, going into nuclear in quite a lot of countries. And obviously nuclear's had somewhat of a a rocky year this year because of severe problems in France in particular with um, maintenance issues, meaning that a lot of their fleet has had to be shut down. So nuclear clearly... It's not the answer to everything, but definitely a modern nuclear industry we think is going to be an important contributor to maintaining power supplies in the future. So put all that together, as I say, I think that's a really positive development you can say from this year, which is that governments are thinking about firm energy supplies and and actually not just thinking about it, but really putting in place the policy frameworks that are going to deliver those firm energy supplies in the future. Now, not going to happen immediately. It takes time, but over time, and certainly over the course of this decade, we think that's going to be a very positive trend. Mm, Interesting. So speaking of things that have happened this year, we had COP26 about a year ago. Do you think there was enough action this year to call COP26 a success? Can we attribute some of the changes in policy to the promises and warnings made in Glasgow a year ago? Kavita, I'm keen to hear your thoughts here. Yes, I, I definitely think so. So COP26 um, brought countries, companies, uh, large swaths of the financial sector 
all behind a net zero future. Uh, so I think it, it set this target, it set this end goal, um, you know, uh, with many countries saying 2050 net zero, others going a bit later. So I think having that sort of agreement um, uh, around one one promise uh, sets the goal for, for then policymakers, other stakeholders to work towards. So I think COP26 was a success by giving us the direction we have to go into. And then what we've seen follow is a roadmap to get there. So as Ed was saying earlier about the Inflation Reduction Act, about support for CCUS and hydrogen, um, what the energy crisis has brought out is that you need resource diversity. You need all tools in the box. But COP26 has told you where to go. And COP26 got agreement around where to go. There was a lot of commentary after COP26, you know, could could agreement have gone further on Article 6? Uh, could there have been more done on loss and damage? But looking back, you know, when you when everybody agrees on the end goal, then it's really good to have a good debate. You form, then you storm. So it's really good to have a good debate, a good discussion on how do you get to this net zero target. Uh, it's not an easy one to get to. It's very complex. Uh, there's many layers to it. So having this debate sort of um, brought forward by the energy crisis on how to get there is a, is a good thing. And if you compare COP26 now to COP27, you, we saw the sort of agreement and the unanimity we had at COP26. And then you look at COP27. So you can you can definitely say COP26 was a success. That's not to say that COP27 is not a success. COP26 was meant to happen, but then got delayed a, a year because of the pandemic. So they were almost ready to go, but then they had another year to make it even better. So yeah. I think, well, that's absolutely right. I think some people have said they see um, perhaps a fading of momentum in terms of uh, countries' climate pledges, in terms of what they're saying, in terms of their commitments to reduce emissions. If you look at one of the outcomes of Glasgow COP26 in 2021, there was meant to be this commitment by all the countries of the world to make more ambitious pledges in terms of emissions reductions during 2022 that hasn't really happened i think last time i looked there were only 26 of the 193 countries that were signatories to the agreement in glasgow had actually come up with more ambitious pledges so when people say well this cop process the whole un climate talks process is losing momentum that's one of the facts they point to i think though the general point is definitely right that there was an enormous amount of progress in 2021. And it's only natural then that there's going to be a bit of a stock take and a pause for breath and time to kind of reflect on exactly how governments and the industry and everybody else are going to achieve the commitments that they made in 2021. So I don't find it very concerning. There's been a bit of discussion out there about, oh, does this show that the UN process is failing, that we aren't really achieving a lot with these annual meetings and the, the whole framework of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and so on? I think that misses the wood for the trees and takes a somewhat short-sighted view. I think if you take a step back and think, where has the world come? Just how much has been achieved by the UN climate process? And the answer is an enormous amount. We're on a very, very different trajectory for energy from the one that we were on, let's say, 20 years ago in the early days of that process. If you think just how much uh, really rapid growth we've had in renewable energy, if you think how the costs of renewable energy have absolutely plummeted 
And if you think now about the path that we're likely to be on for the next 20, 30 years with continued very, very strong growth in renewables and a lot of these other low-carbon technologies now coming up as well, I don't think we'd have been in that position if we hadn't had that UN process. So regardless of the kind of lumps and bumps on the way, and maybe 2022 was not kind of a banner year in terms of progress the way that 2021 was, I still think overall it's very clear what the strategic direction is. And I think real progress is being made. Yeah, and one thing that we've we've teed up on the podcast again and again is that policies and the creation of well-thought-out, intelligent policies are an absolutely necessary precursor for any action. So speaking also of clean technologies, what policies were made this year that have really increased investment in clean technologies? So we saw the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. and the sort of incentives it's going to offer for low-carbon hydrogen and for carbon capture and storage. These are these are massive. Uh, what it could do uh, for nascent industries like CCUS and hydrogen is akin to what feed and tariffs did for solar and wind. So to stand up these industries which are in their infancy and to actually move them on from, to get them to evolve and move them on to being industries that can stand in their own right, you need the sort of support that is coming through now. So the Inflation Reduction Act, we've seen in Japan a package to, uh, to, in, to again, encourage investment in low-carbon technology. And we've seen similar steps in Europe as well. So moving on to our second piece, the role of liquefied natural gas in Europe's energy crisis. Kavita, how did the war in Ukraine impact gas supply and what does the market look like now? So the war in Ukraine had a humongous, massive impact on gas supply into Europe. So the reduction in supply that we see, we estimate was one-fifth of global energy supply uh, when Russian gas supply stopped coming into Europe. What saved the day was that US LNG was redeployed and came into the European market. We saw high prices, but we saw the shortfall from Russian gas being made up by US LNG. So then what does the future of US LNG markets look like? Do you think they have a role to play in supplying Europe? So the US LNG supplying Europe, and we see it supplying European demand in 2023, 2024. There's new US LNG projects being sanctioned. That supply will come on later, uh, later in the decade and in the next decade. At that point, uh, Europe is on an energy transition journey. Uh, We don't know what their appetite for uh, gas will be. But uh, gas plays a big role in uh, decarbonization in Asia as Asian markets switch, as Asian countries switch from coal to gas. Uh, gas plays a big role as transition fuel in Asian markets. So U.S. has saved the day for Europe. It's come in at a very difficult time. And then going forward, these sanctions and new projects and new supply coming on will find a home in Asia if there's no appetite for it in Europe. All right. So moving on to number three, refining. In 2022, refining played a central role in the energy crisis. And how does the sector look now after a year of change? And if we had a crystal ball, what do we think the future holds in terms of refining? So I think this is a really important point because it's one of these things which is a bit uh, counterintuitive, which is that essentially we're saying increased supplies of fossil fuels are good for the energy transition. And this is something that might put people's backs up a little bit or people might (laughs) instinctively kind of be skeptical of that and say, well, hang on, you know, what's going on here? I think, though, this is something which is really um, essential to understand. So we're looking, as you say, at the refining industry, and one of the um, very important factors in the energy crisis that we've had over 2022 has been 
essentially inadequate supplies of refined products, which has pushed up a lot of the prices for those products, particularly diesel, kind of above and beyond what you'd expect anyway from the crude oil price. That essentially crude oil prices sort of spiked during the summer and have then been falling in the second half of the year, still relatively high by the standards of five years ago, but not up at the levels that they were at earlier in the year. And yet prices of refined products have remained very high, partly because of self-sanctioning by lots of countries around the world, essentially a lot of people saying we don't want to buy refined products from Russia, and partly by just a general lack of refining capacity around the world during the pandemic. A lot of refiners were shut down in the US and in Europe in particular. And so we just don't have enough capacity to meet the demand for the fuel that's out there. Over the course of the coming 12 to 18 months or so, that's going to change. And we are going to see a lot more refining capacity come on stream in the Middle East in particular, but also in Africa, also in Asia. We've also seen um, some relaxation from China in the restrictions that they imposed on exports of refined products. So just generally, uh, the market for gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, etc. is going to get easier over that 12 to 18 month period, we think. And so that sort of disconnect and the stark difference between movements in crude oil and movements in prices for refined products that we saw this year, that's going to ease and we're going to see refining margins come back to much more normal levels and product prices start to move in line much more with crude oil prices again. I think you can make a very strong case to say that this is good news for the energy transition. Why is that? Because Elevated prices for fossil fuels don't really help anybody. They create political pressure to do more to support fossil fuel industries. They create political backlash against energy transition policies. It's often very easy for politicians to blame attempts to get towards low carbon energy and say these are the reasons why fossil fuel prices are high. And also they take economic and financial capacity away, because if you're having to um, support people's use of fossil fuels, because if they aren't supported, they can't afford them. So you're having, for instance, to have uh, tax cuts or subsidies in place to enable people to buy the fuel that they need. And that takes away government resources, sometimes investment capital as well, that could otherwise be deployed into low carbon energy technologies. So None of this makes for a uh, supportive or conducive environment for making the crucial investments in low-carbon energy that we really need. And to the extent that those tight market conditions are going to go away over the next year or two, that's definitely a positive development. And I think just, just sort of stepping back for it, the way I always think about it is that when you think about the energy transition, it really has to be first and foremost led on the demand side. If you want to shift the global economy away from high carbon energy, as we do, you have to move demand before you move supply. Because if you move supply without moving demand, and demand is still there, then you just get price volatility, the kind of spikes that we've seen this year, disruption, economic damage, hardship for consumers, all those other downsides that we've been seeing during the course of this year. That's really going to be a big problem for the energy transition if we have that kind of chaotic 
disorderly movement. And so what we really need to make sure we're doing in policy terms, and you talk about the importance of good policy, you're absolutely right. Policy must be focused on the demand for fossil fuels first before it restricts supply. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So supply and demand have to move in sync. And that's the and you get this price volatility and that sets the energy transition back. Without energy supply and demand moving in sync, what you get is an absolutely chaotic transition. And what you need is a planned orderly transition where hydrocarbon consumption, hydrocarbon demand starts going down and renewable consumption and renewable demand replaces that. Kavita, your section of this month's report looked at investment and the way the industry rethinks financing fossil fuels. What are some of your key lessons for this? So coming out of uh, COP26 in Glasgow, uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS is the acronym, was created at COP26. It increased membership at COP26. Uh, So coming out of COP26 in Glasgow, uh, there was a rising consensus that financing of fossil fuels was bad and financing of fossil fuels should stop immediately. And this sort of, uh, this view um, uh, gained momentum. Uh, There was... Uh, reporting on any sort of lending to fossil fuels or any positions from asset managers in in companies and oil and gas companies. Um, I think what what the energy crisis has done is sort of bring home this point that uh, supply and demand have to move in sync. And it's not all or nothing. It's not about doing no financing of fossil fuels. It's not about banks, asset managers, insurance companies moving away from all fossil fuels immediately. Because what happens then, you have this energy supply going down, you don't have renewable supply up to meet that, so you have these extreme price spikes. What has happened is a reassessment. Uh, Some of the bulge bracket banks have come into the discussion. In response, the UN Race to Zero, which underpins GFANS, has updated their criteria. GFANS has come out at COP27 and clarified that their, their objectives are not to stop financing of fossil fuels, but for the financial sector to engage with the fossil fuel sector, to engage with them, to steward them towards an energy transition pathway that meets net zero, that is Paris aligned. It is for uh, the financial sector to invest in climate solutions. And it is also for the financial sector to look at how they can finance assets that will become stranded through the energy transition. Yeah, I think all that's absolutely right. And I think another thing which has been really interesting about the debate about investment in energy this year has been a realization in a number of different places that what you don't want to do is focus only on investment in basically what you might call the West, in developed countries, in the countries that are thinking about climate policy, setting climate goals, setting the more ambitious climate goals for more rapid decarbonization and so on. Because if you just cut off investment to Western companies, the international oil companies, uh, companies operating in developed countries where they're working under more stringent climate regulations, more ambitious climate goals, all that's going to happen is that that activity is going to get relocated to other parts of the world where the climate goals are less ambitious and the regulations are less stringent, and you're still going to get the same fossil fuel production for as long as the demand is there. And that demand is going to be met by producers that care less about emissions and are not trying to make progress towards net zero goals. And so that's a really important uh, 
balancing act to be managed, I think, which is how do you keep that pressure on? How do you keep uh, companies and countries moving towards lower carbon while at the same time not just killing off a whole uh, raft of companies and industries in the countries that prioritize climate change and moving it elsewhere. And I think that that realization that that's a really important issue has definitely sort of uh, emerged in policymaking circles in the investment community, something which is talked about much more now than it was, let's say, a year ago. People understand how important it is. And I think we're probably going to see that continue to evolve. And I think Again, going back to that point about sort of supply and demand, I think people are now starting to talk about the importance of before just restricting investment and curbing supply of fossil fuels, making sure that you've got that investment in low carbon energy first. And that when you think about what policy should do in terms of direct investment or what investors should do in terms of aligning with the Paris goals for climate change, it should be on the positive side. They should be thinking above, above all, first and foremost, about making sure that that capital does get deployed to make sure that we have the investments in low carbon energy that we need before you think about just not investing in fossil fuels and restricting their supply. Yeah, so I, I can't agree more with what Ed has said. Um, it is about investing in renewable energy. It is about investing in clean energy. It's about bringing the supply of clean energy up. But at the same time, the, the fossil fuel production that is ongoing, you have to decarbonize that. And without that sort of decarbonization, you're only addressing one part of the problem and you're leaving, you're turning, you're, it's like it's a blind spot. If you don't look at it, it doesn't mean it'll go away. So it's, it's very important to look at it holistically. Exactly. We live in one world and that's true. It's one climate and it's also one energy industry. And it's very much certainly one oil market, for instance. And so you can't think that if you just have a partial solution affecting only one country, that that's necessarily going to have a global impact. You need to think about the picture holistically. All right. So speaking of global and, and thought leaders in the space, I want to turn our focus to our fifth positive takeaway of the year, Europe's constant push to decarbonize. Ed, I want to start with the Repower EU. What is this and why is it such a milestone? So this is the policy package that European governments have adopted in a response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and really a very fundamental rethink of the way the entire European energy system has worked. And European policymakers have talked about this a little bit this year, that um, someone described basically in the entirety of Germany's economic model was importing low-cost gas from Russia and using that to manufacture products to sell to the world. And if you're not going to buy gas from Russia anymore, which is certainly what Europe says it wants to do, and as Capita was saying earlier, already uh, Europe's imports of gas from Russia have dropped very, very sharply – um, that implies a very fundamental rethink of Europe's economic model. And it was one of those things where sort of with hindsight, people say, well, this is kind of crazy. How could people do this? How could people make themselves in Europe so reliant on Russian gas? But of course, for what, four, five, six decades, it worked, actually. Throughout, you know, we had enormous 
change in Russia. Um, the Soviet Union collapsed. The Cold War ended. We had new uh, countries being formed from the rubble of the Soviet Union. We had changes of government from Yeltsin to Putin and so on. We had tensions between Russia and Ukraine repeatedly um, through the 90s and 2000s. Through all of that time, the supply of Russian gas to Europe remained reliable. So it's sort of, you can see why European politicians very often got lulled into a false sense of security and a belief that the Russian gas would always be there. Now they've, uh, now that illusion has been exposed. They've realized the Russian gas isn't always reliable and they're going to have to do something else. And that means a big effort to invest in other forms of energy. And there's a lot of the things that we've been talking about already on this podcast. So increased imports of LNG from various places around the world, including the US and Qatar. It means increased investment in what you might call firm low-carbon technologies, so hydrogen, nuclear, fossil fuels that use carbon capture and so on. And it also means a huge investment in renewable energy. And the goal that Europe has set, really very ambitious and very short time frame, is to be getting 45% of its total energy from renewables by 2030, so just eight years from now. And uh, that's going to imply probably about 70% of Europe's power coming from renewable sources. So this is a very, very ambitious goal. Um, I think it will be difficult to achieve, but they are committed to doing it. And we're seeing a lot of policies being put in place to make it happen. And actually, Europe's got a pretty good record of achieving the energy goals that it's set in the past, not always necessarily to the precise year that they've set them, but just in general terms, Europe has moved in the direction that policymakers have set. So I certainly think um, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. It's not at all a totally unrealistic goal to set. The thing it is going to mean is that there's going to have to be some quite radical rethinking of the way that power markets operate. We don't really have a good model yet to look to for a large economy, a continent-wide economy like the EU's, using renewable energy at that high level of penetration, at that 70% level that Europe's talking about. That's going to change the economics of power markets in lots of ways. Essentially, the key thing about renewable generation is that the marginal cost basically is zero because the wind is free and the sun is free. And so that upends the economics of power generation in lots of ways. And so you've, you've got the zero marginal cost issue. You've also got, obviously, the variability issue that wind and solar are not dispatchable. You are, to an extent, at the mercy of the weather in terms of how much power you're going to get, and you have to manage that. And so these are some very challenging issues for Europe's grid over the coming decade. and it's going to be very important that Europe manages those properly if it's going to get to the outcomes that it wants to see. But as I say, in terms of a positive development, I think it's really uh, very much to be welcomed that they set these goals and that they are thinking very seriously about how to achieve them. 
Kavita, anything from your side to add to that? Ed has struck a positive note and uh, there is room for optimism here. So what Ed was referring to about a big economy, um, continent-wide, providing a model for other countries or um, other geographies to follow. So Europe has, uh, so this is the starting gun. Europe has set this policy uh, framework in place and will now take steps to implement it. And countries will move at different speeds. So Europe Europe is moving first on policymaking and then on implementation, provides a successful model. That model may not be delivered at the timeline that they're saying it will, but it will come around that timeline. And this successful model is an example for other countries to then look at and implement. We always look at history. Uh, We saw the transition from coal to gas in the UK, and that provides a model for countries such as China that are looking to switch from coal to gas. So similarly, as we look to switch from hydrocarbons or reduce hydrocarbons to more renewable sources of energy, um, Europe provides a roadmap. Europe has a, we have done it, this is how you can do it. And you learn from that and other countries can also implement that. But this sort of proof of concept is really, really important. And Europe could provide that, which could be very powerful. That's interesting. And I'm really looking I think we're all looking towards Europe to see how the next few years play out. And speaking of next few years, I I don't know if you guys like to speculate or not, but I'm going to ask you all to look into your crystal ball and see what your predictions are for 2023 and beyond. Kavita, let's start with you. So I think once you're when you're challenged, um, it can often make your results stronger. So I think in a way, the energy crisis could be a gift. It's challenged how committed uh, some parts are uh, to the energy transition. So I think we could come back stronger. There's room for optimism. Uh, We could see ourselves reset onto a path which is actually tested and tried and debated and discussed. And we could be in a better place. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I feel nervous about saying this. Um, You're always (laughs) offering hostages to fortune when you tell people, Everything's going to be great. Don't worry about it. But I do feel like policymakers, investors, the industry are taking a lot of the right steps right now. I think, crucially, we're seeing a lot of capital being deployed towards energy supply in all areas, in oil and gas, in nuclear, in renewables, in other forms of low-carbon energy. And all of that investment is really going to help It's going to help consumers. It's going to help the world by providing the energy that everybody needs. And although clearly there will be bumps along the way, I actually think we are moving towards a better future where we're going to see an energy industry that meets those classic three requirements of the energy trilemma. How is it that you get energy? You need it to be affordable, reliable, sustainable. Well, you need various conditions to be satisfied for that. You need technology to make progress, and technology is making progress. We're seeing a lot of developments that are very positive in a wide number of different fields. And you need investment. You need capital to be deployed to get that technology put to work. And we are seeing that right now. And so, as I say, although it makes me feel a little bit uh, nervous and uneasy talking like this, I do think we can be very optimistic about seeing a brighter future for energy. Perhaps not immediately, definitely going to be some rough patches. And a lot of these investments are going to take time to kick in. And it will be later in the decade and even in the 2030s, perhaps before we really see the benefits start to show up. But I think it's very clear that at the very least, we're heading in the right direction. Well, I think on behalf of all of our listeners, we're really excited to see what happens next year and even in the longer term than that. 
So with that, thank you both for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, starting with you, Ed, anyone that you want to give a special shout out or thank you to today? Oh, well, um, no one by name. I think that would probably be invidious to single out individuals, but I do just want to give a massive thank you to all of my fantastic colleagues at Woodmac who have been so brilliant this year, as in every other year, in terms of sharing their knowledge and insight and helping me kind of think about the way the world of energy and natural resources is changing. It's just a fantastic privilege, I always think, to work here, to work with so many great colleagues. And I'd also like to give a, a quick shout out to everyone that's been on The Energy Gang, my uh, day job as a podcaster over the past uh, year or so that I've been doing it, which again, has just been fantastic in terms of having really thoughtful, detailed, insightful discussions about the future of energy and where it's going. And that's just been tremendously valuable to me and is a great privilege to be able to take part in those conversations. I absolutely feel the same way. Kavita, same question for you. Anyone you want to give a special thank you or shout out to? So I think a thank you to our, everyone who engages with us. It's such an enormous privilege to be part of this energy transition discussion, to be part of this big wider group that is trying to find an answer to it. And uh, just very thankful for this enormous privilege for people engaging with us, our clients coming to us and asking us for, you know, our views on how they can prepare a sustainability strategy. So, uh, yeah, just very grateful for that. And where can listeners find out more about the work that you both have done within Woodmac? Well, there's, there's plenty on the website. If you take a look at uh, woodmac.com and you can subscribe to our um, regular weekly newsletter, which is called uh, The Inside Track. And look at my newsletter, which is Energy Pulse, which you'll find on woodmac.com and also on social media. I'm uh, Ed underscore Crooks on Twitter. I've actually got a Mastodon account as well. Joining that fashion for opening Mastodon accounts, I don't actually use it yet, but maybe I will do soon. And that's uh, Ed Crooks at mastodon.energy. So uh, look out for that. Oh, and also please do uh, check out The Energy Gang, the podcast, which you'll find wherever you get your podcasts. Outstanding. Well, thank you both so very, very much. And I'm keen to look back a year from now and see how the next year played out. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Liz. It's been lovely talking to you. The outlook for the energy and natural resources landscape in the coming years looks positive when we look at developments at policy and investment over the past year. Yes, we faced unprecedented crises, but as we've seen and discussed today, society is responding by looking for solutions to provide sustainable energy for the decades to come. A huge thank you to everyone for listening and following Horizons over this past year. We've touched on some truly incredible topics, and I've had the honor of hosting and listening to fascinating insights from experts in energy and policy. Thank you also to Ed and Kavita for joining us today, and to Simon Flowers for his analyses at the end of each episode. Have a wonderful Christmas break, and we'll see you in the new year. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett. Goodbye.